airing the Addisons. Let me say this, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to be careful and make sure that in everything, man, we are trying to get as close to what the word says as possible. And we got to understand that with that type of wickedness, man, you know, God does not wink at that. That's judgment. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. And you don't have shades of truth. You have truth or you have error. You have fact or you have fiction. And now we go into the thick of it. Uh oh. Uh oh. Erin Addison's. On American Family Radio, thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm Miki. And I'm Will. And Sherry V is over in Studio CC. And um, boy, what a, a great program we had yesterday. Yeah. Really appreciated having Anna Avery on with us to um, talk woke. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what that looks like Man. at the collegiate level. It was um, spurred on by a phone call that we got mm-hmm. onto the program on Friday afternoon, right. the last call of the show, by the way. And so not much time to respond to our brother Todd listening to us in Ohio. And uh, he had a question about his daughter who was college-aged and came home from college mm-hmm. and um, and basically seems to like them a whole lot. I don't well, want to use hate because that's a strong word. but She would be woke. No. Yeah, has, has so, gotten woke. Yeah, so the, the you know the parents I think bear the brunt of you know the feeling of you guys are not woke. Yeah, and you've you know you've raised you know me in such a way that I I, I hate it now. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Man, I I don't like myself. I don't like you guys. Yeah. And um and and it's sad. There, it's amazing though because I think admitting that you're woke makes you um less responsible for the disparities that exist, but still responsible, but just less responsible because you're at least willing to admit it. Right. Right. Um, those who don't admit it, usually the parents, right. They're the ones who um, have a healthy dose of their right. white fragility showing. Right. So you're too fragile to be confronted. You're too fragile to admit that you have privilege. Yeah. Um, but you know, what's interesting is that this does not only happen with white parents and white children, mm-hmm. right? This also is happening with black parents and black children because you've got black children who are going off to college and are also being fed a healthy dose of wokeness and then come back to their parents who are like, well, hold on a second. I've had an incredible amount of opportunity in this country. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm not oppressed. So, I'm, you know, and so then there's a tension there as well. So what would those parents be considered as you know, as far as those kids go, they, they it well, wouldn't if we be... use go if ahead. we use movie terminology, they're in a sunken place. OK, <laughs> correct. Right. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. So that, automatically you know, they those see. parents become, you know, Uncle Uncle Tom's or are just like you I don't guys know. Are... I don't really know if the younger generation is using that. I think that they're, they're um, sunken they're, they're... Yeah, I, because, you know, those terms are really based on, I guess, our proximity to them. So if you've got to go super far back to learn them, yeah. now there may be some people still using those terms, <laughs> but I don't think the younger generation, certainly they don't even know the character reference there. Right. Like Harriet Beecher Stowe is not in view. So, <laughs> you know, so the cabin certainly isn't as well. Mm. Um, I don't even know if the younger generation is, is comfortable using that. It, I think it's more of the modern terms of um, just like an unwillingness to learn uh, you're ignorant, you know. Wow. Uh, you don't want it. Sunken. Okay. Yeah, you're sunken. You're, that, you're that, in a place where you don't even see your own oppression. It's interesting because, like you said, there's no real way 
uh, to atone for, you know, uh, to be, you know, right or atone yeah. for who you are. But if you're woke, you have a little, okay, you're understanding, but you, yeah. you, you, but you still can't atone for yeah. who you you're are, at least how you've in. been made. You yeah. know, you're at least in, you're not, you're not exalted. Okay. Right. You're not, you're not in a place of preference. Um, but you're at least in because you're willing to admit that you're bad, hmm. right? You're, you're willing to admit that you're irreparably broken. This is, this is critical race theory, or at least the effects of critical race theory yeah. as it spreads uh, from an academic uh-huh. environment to the larger culture um, and then to the church. And it's like gangrene, you know, yeah, you, you that's said right. like uh, from the, academic you know environment Mm -hmm. man to like just society to the church even like and uh like we were talking about yesterday christian universities and and like this thing has spread like like crazy that's right that's right and so the questions that we've been getting and you know i think it's always good to kind of go back so for some of our listeners who have listened for a long time um what we'll cover today will be familiar um the question, though, that we get is what is woke? Like, wh- what is critical race theory? <laughs> yeah. And and in fact, those were the same questions that I was asking that caused me to start researching it. And and let me just say this, too. I am not by any stretch of the imagination an expert mm-hmm. in all of this. I only have a working knowledge of it mm-hmm. so that I can tear it down. you're not supposed to (laughs) why don't you Um, that's look that's i mean i gotta keep it frank you know what i'm saying (laughs) because bob's busy but i gotta keep it frank (laughs) i i only learned this stuff i i subjected myself to learning and reading what i thought was important enough to get it i'm so basically my approach to the books Uh have my approach has been um, oh, uh-huh. Okay. Well, it's a threat oh, to the gospel. It. Okay. It's yeah, a it threat is. to the it is. you know, and that's I mean, that's a good yeah. reason to to learn what this stuff is to tear it down. That's right. Know? And you gotta read it with the Bible next to you. Exactly. Like you got you gotta read it. Because here's what, what happens. Man, and this is why I wouldn't want to live in this world without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Right. The Holy Spirit is not asleep as he indwells us. Come on. Right? Like this, we have this idea (laughs) of like, oh, it's just that he seals us and then, you know, away. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? On leave or something. Like, no, the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. And so that means that when we come across these philosophies that are rivaling the gospel, we're not contending against these philosophies in our own strength. Now, there are people who will do that. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I don't see myself as smart or academic enough to do that. I rely heavily on the spirit. I, I rely heavily on the spirit of That's God to help me mm-hmm. understand what I'm reading. And in fact, because the critical race theory, which comes from critical theory is really, it, it speaks in terms of legal frameworks, right? right. Like right. we're not even talking about stuff that the average person is familiar with. And that's why it's so dangerous because exactly right. That's you, right. you get these different right. ideals that's being, you know, uh, spread about, Mm-hmm. But people don't really understand. They, they may know, like, man, something is just not right about this. Yep. I don't like how I feel when I'm hearing this stuff. But, you know, so they wouldn't know all of the legal nope. terms and all that kind of stuff. I think but it makes it more them, dangerous. Yeah, but it adopt them. It makes it extremely you know? dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So you, you wouldn't be Even familiar the with all the terms right. or the origin of it. But mm-hmm. you would adopt the terminology, begin using it. And I think it's so important that when we hear these things, we are relying on the work of the Spirit of God 
to ask and 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 what of Galatians and, and what of Colossians and, and what think, you know so that you're reminded of the scriptures. And I think what Anna, Anna Avery said yesterday at, that it pulls on heartstrings. You know, you're a Christian. You want to be compassionate. Oh, you so want to be. You know, yeah. you you want. Oh man, maybe I am seeing this wrong, and it pulls upon mm-hmm. a, a part of us that man. You know, we want to to do right and be compassionate, but it has such a deceptive you know, a uh, tinge to it. It's like, man, no, 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 no. It makes, instead of compassion, it, it forces you to feel guilty and, yeah, you know, things yeah. like that, that are not godly. And remember, and, and again, and not to always go back to this, but um, a few years ago, man, the Holy Spirit just started stirring my heart that I should research guilt, that mm-hmm. I should research the effects mm-hmm. of guilt on the human body, guilt without remedy. And boy, even if you take the spiritual aspect out of it, you just look at the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. There is a lot that is written about guilt and the effect that it has on the human body when there is no resolution. Mm. Right. When when you cannot atone for the guilt that you feel like when there is no way for that guilt to be forgiven. And, and when you start to do that research. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you couple it with the call for today to feel perpetually guilty. Right. Um irreparably broken is mm. what you are. And and then you're supposed to comfortably wear that as you move about the culture. Man. It's just ridiculous, man. It's, 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 it's so wicked. And it's so, it should be rejected by the body of Christ because there's, there's hope, you know, yeah. within, you know, Christ. And it, it this Amen. has a, a feeling of hopelessness. I'm just, mm-hmm. this is who I am. This is, no, no, no. We, we talk about the old nature versus the new nature you know like that's right we Amen. are in christ so we are a new creation but this says no you're still going to have that perpetually throughout your life you're going to be this uh, this is who you are man the gospel you know, obliterates all of that amen <laughs> that's right you know? i'm telling you you know it's amazing though that some of these people who um spread this philosophy some of its adherents and some of its teachers mm-hmm. um you know the thing that they want you to accept is the very thing that Christ came and died for, right? This hopelessness, this, that you are lost, that you're Mm -hmm. perishing, that there is no hope that you are, as the scripture told us, uh, tells us that without Christ, we were without God, without hope in this world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what did Christ do? Christ came and he destroyed that barrier that existed Mm. between us and God that produced that hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Right. And now you've got these Mere mortals. Right. <laughs> you exactly. got these people who um, of all of them that I'm going to talk about today, mm-hmm. at least near the beginning of the discussion. Um, I, I hate to say it now, um, but our fertilizer. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, seriously. Yeah. And these people have shaped conversation. Mm-hmm. And now because of the long march, Antonio Gramsci, we're going to talk about that. But because of the the thought of how do we erode culture, mm-hmm. it has made its way into the church. Well, man, the gospel is sustaining. Yeah. And 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 the gospel keeps us from the influence of the culture if we let it. Mm. If we let the truth reign supreme. And what I fear is happening or has happened in the church is that people have and man, you say this, you know, and, and this is one of those things where it's like you just said it. And it kind of caught on. But when you make less of Christ, you make much of everything, everything else. else. Yep. It is so true. When you make less of Christ, like when Christ is not preeminent as he is to be seen, right? As he is to be held in each and every one of our lives, Christ is to be preeminent. And and let me say this, because that sounds a little pity pat. He's preeminent whether you acknowledge it or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. He is the ruler. All right. Um, 
But when we don't see him that way, then we subject ourselves to everything that's kind of floating around in the culture at the time. Mm. And so right now, um, there is this continual conversation coming up and it's coming up in different ways. Um, you may hear something coming from one of your kids or from a grandkid, from a coworker, from a friend, from somebody in your church who says, you know, I know that, you know, you may not be aware of your privilege or I know <laughs> that you're trying to deny that you're oppressed. You know, I, I always, you know, I'm not going to let people give me my oppression. Man, just tell them you oppression. have Christ's privilege. That's the <laughs> highest privilege. Being in Christ. Being, now, you listen. Know? Let's let's just for the sake of setting up where we all st- stand mm-hmm. on this. Okay. Let's imagine what current cultural norms ask of the Christian. Mm. So the Christian is told that there are just certain barriers in life that no matter what, you will never overcome those barriers. Hmm. You live in a country that is so inherently racist that there is just some things or there are some things that you're just never, ever going to be able to do. <laughs> to that, the Christian says, well, no, I I believe that Christ hmm. um, makes hmm. the difference in my Amen. life. And I believe that Christ leads us in victory, spiritually speaking. That's right. But even those things that are naturally occurring in our life, he gives us the power to overcome sin. That's right. Um, I think that if it is the Lord's will for me to be in any certain area, any certain business, that um, he will allow and make a way That's for right. me to be able to do that. That's right. And imagine you're having that conversation and another Christian looks you right in the face and says, you're in a sunken place. Man, no. and what's crazy about that whole scenario is... You are minimizing Christ because you're yeah. saying that he's subject to systems. That's right. <laughs> you know, if right. if you're like, I'm in Christ, but man, I, you know, these people are holding me down. I can't do this. All this country, all the way of things. Man, you're saying that Christ, being in Christ doesn't overcome that at all. Man, can you, you know? imagine? Like, That's you crazy. Know, I, I believe that he is, if in fact the person you're speaking to as a Christian actually believes mm-hmm. that Christ is able and sufficient for the saving of their soul. Mm-hmm. Okay, he can save my soul. Yes, what he his sacrifice was sufficient. It was potent. It was powerful when he said it is finished. I absolutely believe that that I now appropriate Christ's righteousness. Mm. But um but I probably am not going to be able to get the job that I want in life. <laughs> if man. it's the Lord's will, he can't overcome, you know, systemic man. racism. Man, come on, man. Really? <laughs> All right, we got to grab the break. Aaron the Addison's American Family Radio. We'll be right back. Aaron the Addison's on American Family Radio. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's Shylin with Our God is in the Heavens. So I have a presentation um, that I've, I've made a few times in a few different places. Um, the last steps of a long march, um, looking at 
uh, academic philosophies that upset the church and really have infiltrated the church. Mm-hmm. And um, critical race theory is one of those philosophies. Um, intersectionality is another one. Critical race theory is very new. It comes from critical theory, um, but critical race theory is, you know, the black version of critical <laughs> <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much. Is there another way to say it? Uh, um, but what's interesting <laughs> to me about that is as I was reading some of the original documents and I was trying to get an understanding, get a um, just a grasp <laughs> of like where it came from, what was interesting to me was that at the academic level, mm-hmm. okay, um, the scholarly level, you've got these discussions going on about how you're going to basically topple this country. How are you going to change wow. this country yeah. and taking a critical look at all of its structures? Um, well, and let me not get too ahead of myself. Let me just remind our listeners. So today we hear terms like dominant culture. We hear privilege intersectionality. So if you have like a pen in your hand, which you don't have to just think of some of these terms. And if you've heard them before, just kind of check them off. Like, whoa, yeah, I have heard that. And you might also wonder, um, why am I increasingly hearing these terms? There was a time when you you would not have even heard this, right? Mm. Um, Or maybe sparsely, you heard one word here or there. Uh, But again, dominant culture, privilege, intersectionality, fragility, uh, whiteness, (laughs) (laughs) oppressor oppressed those are oldies um white guilt victim woke watch this men (laughs) (laughs) colonizers colonizers uh patriarchy evangelical that's crazy like wait what's wrong with that well (laughs) listen man i you know there are some things that you can observe and you go i wish i wouldn't so write about that one um (laughs) <laughs> the the 81% or whatever the percent was, uh, mm-hmm. I used to know the exact number, 81. which I thought, because 81%, um, the white evangelical uh, chant, mm-hmm. all right? do you, I said, I said, watch, that is going to be used to beat up Christians who are Bible-believing Christians. Mm. That is going to be used to intensify division down ethnic lines, right? And based on those who would adhere to the authority of Scripture. Watch watch that. And, man, and and surely that's yep, what has happened. Right. You have organizations who are saying we're no longer going to be uh, using the name evangelical mm-hmm. because we find it to be too divisive. What? 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 <laughs> Anyways. All right. So evangelical, these are, these are the words that, you know, the terms that we're hearing today that are sort of like flashpoints. All right. Um, America, (laughs) (laughs) Christian. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All of these things are, you have to be very careful how you use them. You have to be very careful when you hear them. And this Mm. is a fairly new thing. Like in the last several decades, this has been increasing. And the the reason so many of us feel kind of like after the eight ball is because when we were done with college, we moved on. (laughs) Right. But college is continuing to produce and then dispense these, um, these philosophies in the minds of kids more and more radical. That's exactly right. So we have to understand that these philosophical concepts, that there are philosophical concepts um, for these these cultural synonyms that I've just thrown out. Right. Mm. That there are concepts that are attached to that and they've been around for decades. And the reason I care about them is not because I enjoy philosophy. I don't mind hearing about it. I don't mind talking about it a little bit. 
But the reason I care about it is because it is invading the church. It has invaded the church, right? right? It has caused major divisions in the church. So in order for us to understand how we have gotten here, even to the conversation we were having yesterday with our sister, Anna Avery, we've got to understand how this has changed and evolved over time until it's come to rest in sort of like a, um, a Petri dish that has the right conditions, the right temperature for growth. Mm. So, so really think of a bacteria, right? Like it's got, it kind of moves around until it finds (laughs) the right conditions. Correct. It's got to be warm enough to keep it alive, right. To where it can grow. And it's got to find a place where it won't be bothered too much. Mm. Right. So it can stay right there. And it's found its home, um, dividing down ethnic lines, it's commonly called racial lines, but we understand there's one race, so I'm mm-hmm. not willing to give on that. We will um, talk up in terms of ethnicity. Anyways, so we have to take a look back to understand how we've gotten here. Classical Marxism, which people hear this term thrown around a lot, right? Classical Marxism always relied on the weak in mind to control. Mm. Now listen to me, and, I, and when I say this, This is in no way meant to be hurtful or biting toward anyone. It is to suggest that you need people who are unwilling to scrutinize deeply what is being presented to them to be able to control them. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So classical Marxism Mm -hmm. has always or or as our sister pointed out, which I thought was so insightful yesterday, you've got to be able to play on people's emotions. Yeah. 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 So you can have a strong mind, but if your emotions are just sort of like, ah, oh, you know what I'm saying? Like your heart is always bleeding, then <laughs> then you can play on that as well. Oh, yeah. So so Marxists envision a world where their definition of the ought can become the is. OK, mm. so this is what we think ought to be. How do we make that so in order to get there? You have to have the masses agree on what the ought is. Okay, so if you have a few people who are like, well, this ought to be, well, that doesn't matter. Because, I mean, come on, there are as many oughts as there are people. But you've got to find a way to make the ought to be something that is accepted by the most people. How do you get Hmm. the masses to agree upon this? So in classical Marxism, the ought is egalitarianism. Life is fair and equal for all. Mm -hmm. The ought is there is no such thing as personal property. The government owns everything taken from those who have and can redistribute as they see fit, giving to those who don't have. You know this famously from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. This is classical Marxism. And its ultimate aim is that government becomes Lord over all. All right. Now, when we talk in terms of Marxism, this is something that goes well over people's heads in just a modern everyday context. We hear these terms. And unless you're really doing a deep dive into this, you don't really think about it. But the more you get into it or hear an explanation, you go, man, I can kind of see how this has happened. Right. So in 1914, classical Marxist theorists believed that they had encountered that moment in time that would usher in their goal of class revolution, that the upper class would experience this revolt by the lower class, the lower class would revolt against the upper class, right? They believed that World War I was their moment, their opportunity to change Europe. World War I was supposed to be the catalyst to the have-nots revolution against the haves, mm. all right? The poor are going to revolt against the rich. 
But that's not what happened at all. Instead, the oppressed, quote unquote, oppressed people went to war and not against the elites. No, in Europe, when the central powers fought against the allied powers, the proletariat went to war. And not against the bourgeoisie, mm. right? So the working class, the poor, mm -hmm. they went to war to protect their countries. <laughs> not to revolt against those who have and they don't have. They didn't take an opportunity to make war on the elite. And so the question is, what happened? What happened? Classical Marxists were certain that their imagined revolution would take place because they felt like they had all of the ingredients for it. Marxists needed angry people and they needed, watch this, a crisis led division. Mm. And they needed victims. People who saw themselves mm -hmm. as victims. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the reason I'm stressing that is because even though we're going back to classical Marxism, as we move forward to cultural Marxism, which is what we are experiencing right now, right. you can see that the necessary ingredients are still the same. You need angry people. Yeah. Hello, mobs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hello, riots. All right. Mm -hmm. Victims. You need a crisis-led division. Crisis. People are dying mm -hmm. in the streets. Mm -hmm. I can't worship with you. This man has been elected. <laughs> and then insert whatever other catalyst you want to use. Right. And then you need victims. Mm -hmm. And watch this. You need perpetual victims. There, there, there is no way you're going to get out of this situation. You are stuck here. So for the classical Marxist, it was you are poor. And you will always be poor. You will always be working for the man. The woman will be eating cake and you will be out there digging in garbage cans. Hmm. Right. But here is what Marxists discovered. They discovered that, yes, people were angry. But these people were nationalists. Mm. They loved their country. That's another one of those words. <laughs> That's another trigger word. Right. Yeah. These people were nationalists and these people had hope. Mm. These people had hope that their situation, bleak as it may have appeared at the time, could change. The European working class was overwhelmingly nationalistic. Workers united and fought for their countries against other workers in other countries. Mm. <laughs> okay. Anyways, <laughs> the French, the Germans, the British, the Italians, mm -hmm. the Russians, the Romanians, etc., were loyal to their nation, not to their station in life. Mm. All right. They were committed to their churches. And the values that they had, they were committed to. They were rooted in morality. And while they were angry, they had a sense of what was worth fighting for. They knew what they needed to protect. So they found safety in family and church and in God's sovereignty. And though they didn't see it at the time in their mind and their heart, they hoped that things were moving in the right direction. So following the war in 1918, Marxist theorists had to rethink their path to their egalitarian utopia, <laughs> right? Where weak individuals would usher in government as their savior. How do we get there? We failed. World war one didn't give us what we wanted. They found Christianity too strong, mm. nationalism too overwhelming, <laughs> and hope too insurmountable. Mm. Now, I want you to, I'm, guys, <laughs> this is where we are in yeah. America, yeah. right? 
that all of those things that were once strong yeah, in our country, eroded. it's eroded yeah. and it's weak. Christianity, eh. <laughs> nationalism, watch your mouth. <laughs> hope, are you stupid? Mm. Right? Like if you have hope, you must be an idiot. You must be bumbling around. Marxist revolutionaries determined the ideals of democracy and freedom were too appealing to their potential foot soldiers. In other words, European Marxists saw their hope of government control slipping through their fingers because the poor wanted to rid themselves of their oppression, but they wanted the American experiment of democracy, mm. opportunity, and capitalism. They believed that Europe's problems could be fixed, but Marxism and communism, void of God and genuine hope, they didn't see that as the solution. Mm. That, was not, that was not even an option for them. Now, I want you to think about this. If the working, ca working class, the proletariat, okay, mm -hmm. if they had hope, then the Marxists didn't. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. If they believed that things could get better for their situation, right, right. then that did not bode well for the Marxists. Yeah. So there was only one way for classical Marxists to have their communist dreams fulfilled. They trained their sights on America. They had to destroy the hope that was radiating from this country, making its way to Europe. Man, I mean, can we, can we have that? Can we have that? So the question is, how do they do that? How do they destroy? And, and I know for some people listening, you're like, man, it cannot be that America's got to fall for so many of these objectives to fall into place. But actually, yes, which I will say to you without feeling embarrassed to say it, it actually makes the case. It actually supports the strong conviction and the evidence of the founding of this country that the Lord did something spectacular with the founding of this country. Yeah. It changed the world people like, and, and look, that's, that's not me. Like, you know, American exceptionalism. It's that is me knowing God and knowing in the sovereignty of God that he does amazing things against all odds. Mm. Right. And so even the founding of this country against all odds, why? Because God has a plan. And listen, let me tell you something, man, the purpose for this country, I strongly believe and people can tell me all kinds of other things, you know, and, and, you know, but I strongly believe for the proliferation and the spread of the gospel. Yeah. The Lord raised up this country and boy, man, <laughs> humbly, were we successful and we're dispatching missionaries left and right going into places, missionaries willing to give their life. And that's why so often you'll hear people ask and wonder aloud, man, you know, has our country outlived its usefulness to God? Because if we're, if we're no longer dispatching missionaries, but, you know, dispatch, dispatching abortion, hmm. you know, and pornography, and, you know, if, if, if that's what we're doing, then what's to stop us being like any other nation that goes asunder? Right. Like, there, I mean, right. you know, who are we to turn to God and say, hey, but God, <laughs> you know, there's no distinction there. Now, we got to grab the break when we when we come back from the other side of the break. We'll continue um, kind, of, kind of this trek from classic Marxism to cultural Marxism mm -hmm. and even put our finger on the entry point. How did it make its way from Europe to the United States of America? And how did man? <laughs> 
How did critical theory become critical race theory? That is so ambitious of me. I know we're not going to get to all of it. We'll have to pick up with it on another show. All right, we'll grab the break. Aaron the Addison's American Family Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Aaron the Addison's on American Family Radio. Appreciate you listening. I'm Miki. And I'm Will, and that's Phil Wickham, Living Hope. So the things, uh, Sherry B is over in Studio CC. I just will let you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to take this segment and finish kind of laying out a little bit of this, this history that I think is so important. Um, And, and then we'll see where we go over the next couple of days. Cause I know that we're not going to get to, uh, to all of it. Let me just say this though. Um, when I research this stuff and, and as I'm reading the information, what I usually pull out and what I focus on most is that, which I see as sort of like parallel to where we are right now. Like it's, Oh wow, this is so key. And, and the reason I'm telling you that is so that you understand that this presentation obviously is not exhaustive. Mm-hmm. Right. There are so many characters and there are so many people who play a role in the proliferation of Marxism and the spread of it. Right. So w- the characters, though, that grab my attention are those that I find significant for the moment that we're in right now. Yeah. And for that, I'll turn my attention to a man by the name of George Lukacs, who lived from 1885 to 1971. And he was the Hungarian Marxist who began honing his skills as a Marxist in Bolshevik Hungary. Now, the thing that stood out to me about him and my research was the method that he employed to engage in what he termed. He came up with this term cultural terrorism, Mm. cultural terrorism Um, through access to children and their education. (laughs) He decided that if he was going to change society, he would have to essentially terrorize members of society starting with the youngest among us right so this was the method that he thought would be best to again erode society so what did he do being sort of like a um secretary of education if you will he had access to children and he lectured children in school that they should reject christian ethics in his lectures he showed graphic sexual material And he took that material and presented it to children and then also taught them that loose sexual conduct was normative, that this was Mm -hmm. this was not something that they should be embarrassed about. They should not basically carry themselves like their cold, frigid parents. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. so after the fall of Hungary's communist government, Lukacs made his way to Germany. And I'm skipping ahead here. In 1923 in Frankfurt, Germany, which should be familiar. Some Mm -hmm. people would have heard the Frankfurt School, Mm -hmm. right? Lukacs, joined by other Marxists, recognized that the narrow focus of classical Marxism, which pits person against person solely based on economics, was never going to create their desired outcome. Let me say that again. They recognized that this classical Marxist aim, where you can pit people against one another just based on economics was not enough. Why? Because again, people had hope and and there was this feeling that 
God will change my situation, right? Mm -hmm. I can work hard and I can achieve. So what do these Marxists decide? What do they, they get together and they come up with this brainchild in Frankfurt, right? Which eventually becomes the Frankfurt school. Um, they decide that we've got to find another way to divide people. So we've got to awaken people to their underprivileged lives that go far beyond how much money they're making. And if we can do that, we can find a way to keep these underprivileged people in a perpetual class, a perpetual state where they realize I will never get out of this spot. Mm. Right. And it has nothing to do with how much money you have. Now think about that, which is why today LeBron James is oppressed. Cause <laughs> wow. it's not about money anymore. Right. Right. It's not about money. There was a time when if <laughs> if the proletariat was going to revolt against the bourgeoisie, then LeBron James better, you know, beef, beef up his security. <laughs> right. <laughs> because the have nots are coming for the haves and LeBron James will be the haves. But see, he gets to not face or acknowledge his privilege because that's not how we're defining privilege these days. Mm. Mm. Right. It's not about how much money you have. It's about something that can never, ever change, right? So LeBron James, no matter how much money he makes, he'll always be black. And he'll always be a black man in America. So perpetually oppressed. That's why he can do press conferences where he's moved to tears and he doesn't know what's, on, what, what, what's the cop's state of mind when he wakes up that day. He doesn't know. If he, if he got out of bed, it's like, you know, today's the day I'm going to get me one of them. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's Anyways, I'll, I'll continue. <laughs> All right. Classical Marxists counted on the idea that once the poor and underprivileged were awakened to their perpetual state in life called class consciousness, mm. or once they were woke, mm -hmm. that they would revolt. Yeah, look at that. However, go ahead. No, I was just saying, look at that. The, I mean, that's 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 the origins of it. Class yeah. consciousness, the right? Wokeness. To awaken to your state, <laughs> to be woke. All right. Um, however, Class, classical Marxism was insufficient for people who were awakened to the fact that there were possibilities. There were economic possibilities beyond their current state. So classical Marxism, again, was insuff insufficient. Lukacs and his colleagues realized they would need to create a new class of oppressed people. This group couldn't have any hope of liberation. They would need to exist in an inescapable state of victimhood. Mm. They would need to see themselves as victims of Western institutions. The Western institutions that the Marxists despised. Mm. Because the institutions, according to these Marxists who hated God, were at their core instituted by God uh. and ultimately submitted to by Christians. So the church. Come on, man. Has to listen. be attacked like that can't thrive. The church is the final frontier, mm. actually. Right. But there are other institutions mm -hmm. that have been trampled on this march toward the church. I mean, this is what we are talking about is spiritual in nature. And that's why, you know, it grieves me that so many people um, don't get it yeah. and don't see it. This is this. We're not just talking terms and history. We are talking spiritual implications of people who hate God. Yeah. What yeah. does that look like played out in culture? Because even, what does that look like played out in academia? I would say even in, uh, in academia, it started off being Christian, like, you know, and 
And certainly in America, yes. In America. Yes. Yeah. But now if you look at those same universities that started off being, you know, staunchly Christian and, and training, you know, uh for, for ministry, mm-hmm. now they are liberal bastions. So <laughs> you know? for the Marxists, they get to tick that off as a success. Right. Th- that gets that gets a check next to it as like they have conquered that because the institutions that the Marxists set their sights on from Europe, okay were the American institutions, ultimately America itself. Right. Mm -hmm. But you've got to chip away at America. You can't you can't just take America. You have to you have to chip away at it. So how do you do that? Well, they had certain institutions that they set their sights on to to begin this erosion. Mm. Number one, the family. Mm. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Universities. Mm hmm. Yep. The church. Mm-hmm. And guess what? And, and here's what's so amazing about this. For the for the cultural Marxist, right? The belief was that if you topple the church, you won't have to worry about changing the form of government. That will come automatically. Isn't that mm. something? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That if you if you will destroy the strength Dang. of Christianity. Wow then you're going to change the form of government that the Americans enjoy. Right. And that they're trying to spread all around the world. And Mm. it's amazing to me that the wicked understand that, Mm -hmm. but the church does not even stand guard. And and that's so true because the way that this country has been, you know, created, you know, I would say the morality of the people matter (laughs) in order for it to be, you know, a great nation or whatever. It has to be one that would, uh, have moral uh, 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 strength, you mm-hmm. know. So if you erode all of that, all of that, and you know, topple uh, uh, the church and the influence yes. of the church within the country, man, they're gonna fold within. So listen. So this is why I say, when we are fighting for our country, if we say the church will fend for herself. If, if we, if we leave the church sort of like, ah, we know that's all going to work out. We got to save the country. Mm. Then we play right into the cultural Marxist hands mm. because it's easy for the government to be reshaped and reformed. If the church hmm. is destroyed, mm. if the church crumbles, if the church is weakened, why? Because our form of government emanates from this conviction that there is morality, mm-hmm. that there is right and that there is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, look, even the, the moment that we're having right now, why are people in sense? Because we have a sense still that there is right and there is wrong. Yeah. And when we can look out and say, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if the prophetic voice of the church is silence where Come we on. no longer, ah, you know, we can't, I, we don't really know. It might be wrong for me, but maybe it's not wrong for Come you. On. Right. Then what happens? Look at how the government is affected. This is why we have to contend for the gospel. Come this on. is why we have to contend for the faith. This Amen. is why we work so hard to pass it on to our children. Yes. This yes. is why we care about what their influences are. You think that it's just a coincidence that our kids are exposed at younger and younger age hmm. to sex and Come sexuality on. that are this generation of kids. Yeah, I would say it's probably the most probably this generation of kids is the most sexualized generation yep. of kids that we've ever known in this country. Yep. It's all on they purpose. are exposed to all more than any group in their age at the time has ever been exposed to. 
And we can't sit back and think that, oh, well, but if we get the right people in office, we're going to turn that all around. No, because the cultural Marxists understand that we've got to erode morality. We've got to weaken the church. And when people stand up and say, well, I can't worship with that person. I just can't. I just can't be. I can't be around them. I just cannot. You don't understand your privilege. You play right into their hands. Forget about how you vote. Forget about who's on the ballot. Because a weakened church is all they were anticipating. Wow. In fact, that's 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 the last kind of gate. That's that's the last blockade, if you will. Before the government changes completely. And it grieves me when people are just so like, I I wish you wouldn't talk so much about what's going on with the church. Don't you see what's happening in the country? Yeah. And what's happening in the country is happening because of what's going on with the church. Come on. Come on. Of course I see it. Yeah. Where do these people come from? (laughs) Man. And you heard our brother Todd on Friday. (laughs) His daughter ate bacon at his table. (laughs) Come on. Mm-hmm. By 1933, cultural Marxism was born. No longer was the cry class consciousness. The cry would simply be consciousness, or as we know it today, wokeness. Open your eyes to your state. It's never going to get better for you. You're always going to be in this position. Antonio Gramsci, um, cultural Marxist in Germany, who wrote a series of prison notebooks, mm-hmm. right? Series of papers um, where he, among other terms, uh, adopted and coined the phrase cultural hegemony, um, where there's this dominant culture that determines how everything else is supposed to be, right? And so everybody who's outside of that dominant culture, all right? Everybody who's outside of that, you don't have privilege, mm-hmm. okay? You're supposed to rise up and rebel knowing that you're stuck in a state that you'll forever be in. Now, you know what we should think about? We should think about how people get into these classes. I call it the race to the bottom so that you can be at the top. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's not just it's not just the color of your skin, but it's also your gender. Mm -hmm. And think about what we see happening in the world. And man, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, America seems to be leading the charge. We keep. Um broadening the terms of people that I hate to say it this way, get to be oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. it's not just women are oppressed. Um, black people are oppressed. Now we, we say things like black and brown people, mm-hmm. right. Um, um, people who are not cisgender. <laughs> and I said that and somebody was like, sis, what? <laughs> They're like, sister, I don't understand what you just said. <laughs> right. Because, and, and you got to learn all these terms. Why? Because these people are evidence that you have privilege. You don't even know they exist, right? <laughs> you, you don't even know the privilege that you have. That's, that's a luxury of the elite. It has nothing to do with how much money you make. And that's why for so many people, you're so confused because you're going, wait a minute, I have needs just like you. What? Mm-hmm. There's some people who are like, wait, I'm poor. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then they're like, no, this isn't about money anymore. Because we realize that, yeah, people will kind of catch on to the fact that if you work, you're going to bring home some form of payment. Mm. So, so you know, the jig is up. Yeah. But we got to find other ways to keep people down. Mm. It's got to be immutable. It can't change. It, there, there can't be any remedy to it. So my skin color will always be my skin color. 
you know, unless you, unless you're Michael Jackson. <laughs> then that, I mean, that's different, right? My gender will always be my gender, unless, of course, I change it, which creates another class of people who are also oppressed. Mm. Guys, it's wicked. Yeah. It's wicked. Yep. It's where we are now. And the enemy is fine that we continue busying ourselves doing other things because he wants to wreak havoc mm. on the church. We're out of time. Until tomorrow, Lord willing. God bless.